Minasan, Yokoso, I'm Weabro Derek, and this is the Weabro's Anime Podcast. No Sean today. I do have one moderately important thing to pass on, though, and then also one other thing that only vaguely relates to the show. But then I figure we'll get into the weekend review and wrap things up with a conversation looking at the anime industry as a whole. First, Bandai Namco dropped a pretty big announcement earlier this week. We're finally getting that second season of One Punch Man. It'll start spring of 2019. I suppose I can post the announcement trailer in the podcast description on the blog site, theweabros.show. On the off chance you haven't seen the trailer yet, but in it, we catch glimpses of many of our favorite heroes, but also at the end, what looks to be a new antagonist. Garo is his name. He looks like a younger, more sinister version of the old guy Silver Fang, who's pretty cool. I think he's one of the S-Class heroes. It's very exciting news, but I'm not going to let myself get too eager about this. Remember, part of the reason it took so long for us to get confirmation of this second season was that Madhouse decided they did not want to help produce it. JC Staff is now the Banner Studio, and I have nothing against them. They're the studio behind Shokugeki, Toradora, Azumagadayo, but some of their stuff does tend to run a little fan servicey. Like I said, Food Wars, they did Prison School. Anyway, what's concerning here is that they're changing up some of the key crew members from this first season of One Punch Man. While series composer Tomohiro Suzuki and a few others are back, director Shingo Natsume is being replaced by somebody I'm not familiar with, and they're replacing sound director Shoji Hata as well. It's not entirely uncommon for different studios to work on different seasons of a show, but that's two out of five major pieces here that are being swapped out in this transition that may or may not make a difference i'm a little hesitant anytime there are changes to a crew particularly if what they had going was already working compare that now to the new konosuba movie that's going to be coming out eventually i don't think we have a date for it yet but the producers are jumping from studio dean funnily enough over to jc staff but the director writer and series composer, character designer, music producer, etc. They're all coming back despite that change in studio. I have a little more confidence in something like that delivering what's expected than I do when they start changing up that top-tier personnel. Now on to the other thing. Last week, or maybe it was the week before, Sean brought up Resident Evil 2. If you're a fan of that franchise, you might be interested to know that Capcom is releasing an Umbrella Corporation typewriter-themed keyboard that you can buy along with the remade version of the game that's coming out, I believe, next January. The trouble is that it appears they're only selling it in Japan, so if you want one, you're going to have to fork over 75,000 yen. That's roughly 675 US dollars, and I'm not sure if that covers shipping. It is nice looking though, and Bluetooth enabled. I'll post the link to the article with the images of that keyboard in the podcast description on the blog site as well. 
With that, we'll get into the week in review now. It's Attack on Titan Season 3, Episode 4, Trust. That's Episode 41 overall, if you're keeping track. After last week's big bit of exposition, we now rejoin what's left of our beloved Survey Corps as they run around the woods trying to get Aaron and Historia, all the while attempting to evade capture by the military police. In the city, the government has control over much of the media and is pushing a narrative that the Scout Regiment is responsible for the murder of Demo Reeves, a fairly prominent businessman from the Trost District. But one variable here that we haven't talked about yet is Demo's kid, Flegel, uh, Flugel, whatever his name is. He witnessed the murder of his father by the military police. He realizes what they're doing, but he's been trying to lay low so as not to get shot up himself. He's running away from the police when Commander Hanji rescues, then abducts him. He tells her what he saw the night of the murder. Meanwhile, Levi's squad is rounding up the police that are searching for them in the woods. They're stealing their uniforms with the intent to use them as a disguise and infiltrate the capital to gain more information. So, Levi tells Sasha to go, up to, er, to go tie up two of the police officers that they capture, but John asks to do it instead. He, of course, has an ulterior motive for doing this. At first, it seems like he's gone a little cray-cray, uh, and he's going to murder them because he's lost it mentally. But in reality, he knows what he's doing, and he's testing the one officer, Marlowe, uh, who says he wants to help. So Marlowe is able to prove his loyalty to the values of the Survey Corps during this altercation. Uh, but the other officer, Hitch, her motives for cooperating with Levi and friends, I feel, are a little more ambiguous. Uh, I still think she's just trying to not die, really, so she's just going with it. Nonetheless, they help the scouts locate a military police camp with someone who's part of the interior squad of the police. They're able to take over the camp and question the guy. He reveals that he doesn't actually know a whole lot, though, because one of the main higher-ups, Kenny Ackerman, doesn't divulge a whole lot of information. Ackerman, Ackerman, Ackerman. Hmm, where have we heard that name before? Mikasa, by chance? I don't know if that's actually a story-related thing or not. I have a feeling it probably is. Towards the end of the episode, we jump back to the city where Hanji and Re that Reeves kid uh, have set up a bit of a trap for the military police pursuing him. He leads them to a deserted housing complex and gets them to admit that the police are actually the ones responsible for the murder. Well, it turns out that complex isn't so empty after all. Reeves was able to use his influence as the de facto leader of the Reeves company now to get some of the townsfolk living in that area to hide nearby and listen in on that conversation. The two journalists from earlier were there as well. At the very end, we see Irwin is pretty beat up, and an old friend of his tells him that they're probably going to off him, then dismantle the Survey Corps, but he will get an audience with the king, quote-unquote, himself first, and that's to be continued. On to Overlord 3, Episode 6, Invitation to Death. We get the introduction of another nation now, the Baruth Empire. It's under the rule of a Gilgamesh-looking guy uh, by the name of, was it Jer, Jerkniv, Ruin, Farlord, El Nix, something like that, and his imperial court wizard, Lord Fluter Paradine. 
They're fairly uh, well-off country, and fairly formidable, at least relative to the other nearby factions. The wizard Fluter has a Death Knight chained up in the basement that he's been trying to get to submit to his will, and this gives us a rough estimate of his power as a magic caster and necromancer, though. He's struggling to get this one Death Knight to submit. Meanwhile, Ainz has many that are training in the Great Tomb of Nazarek, so my assumption is this guy is strong relative to other weaklings around him, but insignificant compared to Ainz and probably anyone in his main entourage. Now, the Baruth King does make an interesting remark. He's talking with Fluter about the emergence of many heroes and monsters that were previously unknown, and ponders aloud whether or not it's a sign that there is another great war coming, a war that took place against some evil deities 200 years prior. At any rate, uh, Baruth brings an interesting cast of characters into the series now. We get the king, his wizard, and their prized knights, but also a scene that introduces a group of four mercenaries that work out of the city. They're called workers as opposed to adventurers because they don't get their missions from the guild. They're kind of like a quest black market type deal. A little more sketch. The group is one of several hired by a count from Riestes to explore a newly discovered ancient tomb. There's also a red flag that's thrown up here, though. Uh, Archie, who is one of the members of Arsh, Archie, whatever her name is. Yeah, I'm not the greatest with these name things. I should probably write them down. But uh, one of the members of this party is nearing retirement because she's going to possibly take in her younger sisters because her parents are fallen nobles who can't manage their finances responsibly. They each have their own reason for wanting to take the gig. I like this crew, but uh, they're about to waltz into a world of trouble though because this giant tomb just so happens to be the great tomb of Nazarek. And isn't it generally just a bad omen when a character or group of characters is looking at a mission as their last one before retirement? Well, for what it's worth though, Ainz is there as his uh, Black Knight persona. He's not going to be going with them into the tombs though. He is there watching the camp, so it'll be interesting to see next week, so this will be this upcoming Tuesday, that the next episode will drop, if everyone who goes in to explore this tomb makes it out alive or not, and I have a feeling most of them, if not all of them, won't. Lastly, we're on to Steins Gate Zero, episode 18, Altair of the Translational Symmetry. Freaking Leskinen, man. Sean called it very early on, and I started to buy into it as soon as he went missing for a couple days after the first hack of the Amadeus AI and attempted kidnapping of Kagari. So, brainwashed Kagari shoots Mayuri on the rooftop then comes out of her brainwashed state, sees her mother lying motionless on the ground, and proceeds to Violet Evergarden the F out of all the soldiers on the rooftop, thinking that they are the ones that killed Mayuri. Meanwhile, Leskinen is deviously lecturing Okabe, who is limping around in the stairwell. Turns out Leskinen works for Strat4, one of those groups mentioned early on as a potential enemy. 
He feeds them information, but he actually intends on taking the machine for himself. He's the one who imprisoned Kagari 13 years ago and proceeded to begin turning her into a weapon. Unfortunately for Leskinen, like many other great villains before him, he talks too much for too long, and Okaba is able to tackle him in the stairwell. However, uh, after that initially quick and effective decision, Okabe fails to acquire Leskinen's firearm before he takes off to his friend's on the rooftop. Mayuri is fine, by the way. Kagari isn't, though. She gets popped a few times during the conflict up there and is slowly bleeding out. Then Leskinen reappears with Daru and Maho as hostages. He also has the gun, remember? Okabe did not take it. He explains that he actually brainwashed Kagari in the future and sent her back for his past self to use in order to steal the time machine to obtain the power of time travel. And they had alluded to this a couple of times now. I guess it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, even though it sounds ridiculous saying it right now. Suzuha mentioned that Kagari had this whole voice of God thing even as a kid, and I think Kagari recalled an evil professor in one of her memories that came back to her in one of the earlier episodes. But Leskinen doesn't even really have a plan other than that he just wants to screw around with things, uh, test out a hypothesis that future Leskinen has, and he doesn't really care if he breaks the world. He is indeed a mad scientist. As Leskinen is approaching the time machine, he gives us a brief future history lesson. Something along the lines of an information war and the real race for the time machine beginning on this day where he is right now, where the first time machine is actually destroyed in this altercation on the rooftop. But it's developed again in 25 years. Leskinen has an idea he wants to test, though. What if someone were to steal said time machine at just the right time, right then and there, fake its destruction, then go back in time with that technology. It does seem like an interesting thing to consider, but again, Leskinen talks too much for too long and Suzuha kicks his butt. Then, as foretold by Leskinen, the paramilitary organizations show up. Mayuri and Suzuha try to get into the time machine and take off, but it may or may not have been blown up by a rocket prior to their departure. We're led to believe at least that they did not make it. But uh, they've almost killed a few people off a few times now. Uh, I thought Mayuri was dead at the end of last episode. Regardless, we're going to proceed as if they did not make it. Okabe and company don't think they made it. At the very end, Okabe gets a text message from Mayuri. It's a pretty emotional text in which she confesses her love for him and explains why she needs to go back in time. I had two thoughts on that. The first was, oh cool, she did make it, and it's from the past or the future or whenever. But then, uh, as they were progressing through the credits sequence, I thought, oh, maybe it was actually sent to him before the events on the rooftop and he just didn't get it until afterwards because all the cell service was down. Either way, she mentions in the text that she's confident he'll come to fix things if they don't work out. And so now, finally, at episode 18, we have the event that will push Okabe to take action. At least we think. One more thing to take away from this episode... Coming into Steins Gate Zero, it was said that it would help better explain how Okabe came up with his idea to cheat death, to cheat fate, 
in the original Steins Gate. I think we get it here. When Leskinen is asking out loud what would happen if you stage the events to set about the same chain of events, but they actually don't occur. The time machine, in, in, as it refers to Leskinen's idea, the time machine isn't actually destroyed, but in faking its destruction, he still sets about the same chain of events. He then goes into a different time. And I don't know if he knows exactly how the time travel works with the different lines, but his idea is he will then go back in time and be able to change things and not actually affect the world in which he was originally a part of, or the time in which he was originally a part of. And this is ultimately what Okabe ends up doing with Karisu to save her and Mayuri in the original series. He fakes Karisu's death. So I have a feeling that these last five episodes may lead us to a point where we intersect with that last arc of the original series. I don't know how, but it seems like something they could do. Now, here in the final segment of the show today, we're going to zoom out and look at the anime production industry as a whole. Financial research firm Teikoku Databank recently released a report that shows the anime industry reached a record high income last year. The 255 companies that they looked at brought in what equates to 1.8 billion US dollars. Again, a record. They saw an actual profit increase of nearly 55% from the year before. And this is overall probably a good thing, right? The industry is growing. But it's never quite that simple, is it? One of the common complaints from anime fans, especially ones that have been watching for some time, is that quantity does not necessarily equate to quality. The increase in popularity and the influx of money has in some ways changed the way producers greenlight and actually produce a series. Even as recently as the early 2000s, we had shows like Monster, which ran for 74 episodes consecutively. Higurashi had 50 episodes over four anime seasons before the story was actually concluded. Then they had five extra after that. You don't see that as often now. Now, if a creator is lucky, they'll have their stuff considered for 12 or 13 episodes, 24 if they're really lucky, or if it's already very, very popular source material, because the producers are pumping out as many shows as quickly as they can to cash in on the increasing popularity and not willing to take chances on the ideas that last any longer unless you can prove it'll bring in the money after just 13 episodes. Then you'll get your sequel season and rinse and repeat. There may be a problem with that mentality. Another issue here is the increased competition among studios, especially with the smaller ones. There were four companies that were studied in this report that filed for bankruptcy two more that completely disbanded. In order to keep up with the intensified competition, studios are lowering prices, putting more work on smaller payrolls, and you've got less people taking on more work. Now, when that happens, the quality of the product comes into question too. Record of Grand Crest War is a recent example of this in which A1 Pictures and the smaller studios they were working with could not consistently produce quality animation. People were legit laughing at scenes that were supposed to be really dramatic because they looked really bad. 
But again, you've got less people rushing to put out a product as quickly as they can to keep up with the demand. You have to question, is this kind of growth in the industry really sustainable? I don't know. You would like to think that producers would look at something like Grand Crest and say, well, we really did rush that one along, probably should have invested a little more time and resource into it, and more people might have liked it. But they may not be thinking that at all if they're already on to the next one or two or three series they're doing right now, like a shotgun approach of quantity over quality. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the subject or any of the others today, really. Feel free to drop a comment on the podcast post at theweobros.show. You can get involved in the discussion that way. Also, you can email weobrosblog at yahoo.com and let us know if there's something you want talked about or something you would even like to possibly talk about on the show. Feel free to drop a line and we'll, uh, we'll see if we can make it happen. That'll do it for this one. Thanks again for listening.